Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. So I was sent down to the basement of headquarters to a sort of a large room that looked kind of like a hair salon. And uh, I was put into a disguise. And I remember thinking it was all, I didn't quite buy it because the whole disguise was to slick my hair back, glue a false mustache to my upper lip and give me a pair of glasses. So to me, I was like, it just seemed completely unconvincing. I just looked like myself wearing glasses pretty much. I went upstairs and uh, I got my lunch. I sat down at the table and I got a few weird glances and nobody said hello to me. And I, I just waited and waited. And finally at the end of lunch, I said, you guys know it's me, right? And they still didn't know it was me. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy. We're going to do something a little different on this episode, something I'm very excited about. Usually we get one former spy to tell the story of one operation. This week, the former spy is Joe Weisberg, who went on to become a television writer and producer. About a decade ago, Weisberg created The Americans, a show about two Russian intelligence officers who pretend to be an American couple living normal lives with their children in suburban Virginia. The show is set in the 1980s, at the height of the Cold War. I played the part of Claudia, the KGB handler who oversees the officers. Weisberg hadn't spoken much about his time at the CIA before creating the show, but his experiences at the agency helped inform storylines in the Americans. They also helped shape Weisberg's views on espionage. Eventually, he came to believe that spying does more harm than good in the world. Here's his story. People always are curious about why I joined the CIA and how. And, you know, my story was that I had grown up with a little bit of a fascination with spying and espionage you know like everybody every other kid i love the james bond movies and then i graduated to the john le carre novels and i think somewhere in that zone when i started reading those books it went from a kind of interest to something a little more passionate for me something i i really wanted to do it's not that i wasn't aware of their heaviness and their darkness but it touched something in me that was appealing rather than turning me off. I mean, in a way, it's kind of nuts to read a John Le Carre novel and think you want to be a spy, but that's what happened to me. And I sort of forgot about it as I grew older. I didn't really go to college thinking one day I'm going to join the CIA. Far from it. But um, a few years after I graduated, I was working as a job counselor, working with Soviet refugees in Chicago, and I was just bored. My my job was kind of interesting at first, but then it became kind of routine, and I would sit at this desk all day, and I had my white shirt and my tie that I put on every morning, and I started thinking, I have to get out from behind this desk. I have to do something where I feel stimulated and interested, and I just thought, 
maybe I could join the CIA. It was an incredibly weird thought in a way because I didn't know anybody who had done that. I didn't know anybody who had considered doing it. I had never had any conversation with anyone about, you know, maybe intelligence as a career you could pursue. I literally looked up the CIA in the phone book. Somewhat to my surprise, they were listed. I called them up. I said, I was wondering if you could send me a job application. Is that a thing you do? And, you know, a few days later, I got this huge packet in the mail. I say huge because the job application asks a lot of questions and requires that you fill in pretty much every detail from your entire life. So after filling out this application. I waited a long time and then I got another letter in the mail inviting me to come take a test. I didn't know what the test was going to be, but I had a feeling I should know where the countries in the world were. If I was applying to the CIA, I was not good at geography. And so the night before the test, I stayed up studying an atlas until I could place pretty much every country in the world and sure enough, that was on the test. They gave you a blank map and you had to fill it out. I don't know. I probably would have accurately filled out about five or ten countries if I hadn't kind of crammed for it based on a good guess. The polygraph is not exactly what you imagine. They call you a couple weeks before and they tell you all the questions that they're going to ask you on the polygraph exam. And you also answer them. So they say you will be asked on the polygraph exam if you have any contacts with foreign intelligence agencies. Do you have any contacts with foreign intelligence agencies? And you're on the phone with the officer from the Office of Security and you tell them the answer, which presumably is no. (laughs) And then when you get to the actual polygraph exam, they may ask that question again, or they may say, were you truthful in your phone interview when you said you had no contacts in foreign intelligence agencies? It's not a trick. It's the opposite. It's they're sort of maximizing your chances of, of getting through the test. The best example of this for me is uh, when they said in the interview ahead of time, you know, have you ever taken any drugs? And I said, yes, I've smoked marijuana. Have you ever taken any other drugs? No. How many times did you smoke marijuana? And I got very nervous around the question of how many times. And I said, well, I don't know, maybe more than 10. And then I had this negotiation where the guy said more than 20. And I said, yeah, more than 20. He said more than 30. I said, ah, yeah, probably more than 30. And we got all the way to 100. And when I said it could be more than 100, he said, are you telling me the truth? Or are you just trying to be very careful that you're not misleading me? Which I thought was very insightful because that's exactly how I felt. And then on the actual test, he just asked, you know, were you truthful when you talked about drugs with the security officer? So it had the feeling for me of they're trying to help you. They're trying to get you through. They want you to pass. I actually began work in late 1990. And, uh, you know, it was obviously a time in the world when the Soviet Union was changing rapidly. The wall had come down. Looking back on it now, you tend to think, well, if the wall had come down, then the writing was on the wall about the Soviet Union. But that wasn't true, or at least it was not true for me and those of us in the CIA who probably were in certain ways not eager 
to have the Cold War come to an end because that was the mission of the CIA was to fight that war. And I joined the CIA to, to fight that war. So I was pretty ambivalent about it ending right after I got there. It was not too long after, of course, you know, in 91 that the Soviet Union collapsed. And as I remember it, the CIA very kind of openly entered a period of searching for its new mission. And the fact that the end of the Cold War left the CIA unsure what to do and that it was going to launch on a kind of journey to figure out what it should do was all handled openly. Like people talked about it. There were memos sent around. I think there were committees and groups trying to figure things out. So it was a real kind of uh, in-between period before the war on terror appeared to kind of take the place of the Cold War. So I think like most of my classmates, I was really looking forward to to the training. And, uh, you know, I always joke about it because the first thing they do is they take your group and they put us in a room and for six weeks lectured us on the bureaucratic structure of the CIA and the intelligence community. It was the opposite of everything you would have fantasized about. And people, literally, these young, ambitious trainees were falling asleep you know, in the middle of the day, and people were joking about whether or not this was a kind of a test. Could you survive the six weeks of bureaucratic inculcation? And then as if to make up for it, the very next segment is paramilitary training, where they teach you how to shoot guns. And people described it as sort of outward bound with guns, which I think is a good description because it did not really have the physical rigor of military basic training, but you wore military uniforms and it was sort of done in the spirit of a military basic training just for people who weren't necessarily all cut out for that. Although plenty were, there were plenty of ex-military people and people with that mindset. In training to be a case officer, you were taught to and practice manipulating people to get them to spy for the U.S. government. And the idea that this is a fine thing to do and morally and emotionally okay and valuable to the U.S. government is all taken for granted. And when you are being taught by people who take it for granted and you are in a group of people who are learning to do it, I think the group slowly but surely learns to accept all those things and take them for granted without even necessarily thinking about it too much. I remember one person in my class who quit and he said, this is, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to manipulate people or be in this kind of relationship with people. It doesn't feel good to me. And I remember that I think everybody sort of had the same feeling about that, which is on the one hand, we respected him and appreciated that he realized it wasn't for him. But I don't think any of us related to that. I think it seemed a little odd. I think it seemed like a weakness. One of my interim assignments during training was at the agency's all-night 24-hour operations center, which was kind of the place at the CIA where everybody stayed up and watched what was happening in the world and knew who to call if something happened. So like on my second day, the phone rang and I didn't quite understand the phone system yet. So I picked it up and somebody asked me what was going on in 
I don't know what country of the world. And just because I had picked up the general phone line, it happened to be the part of the world that I was following that night. So I gave an answer. And as I was talking, I sort of picked up this weird energy and I looked around and the head of the operations center and everybody else, they were all staring at me and something was wrong. And I didn't know what it was. But I got through my answer and I fortunately gave a competent answer. And then I hung up and they said, do you know who that was? That was the director. So I had picked up a phone I was not supposed to pick up, and it was the director of the CIA calling. It's hard to express how kind of inappropriate it is for a trainee to answer to call from the director. At the CIA, the director is, you know, feels like the president to you. But I sort of got out of that barely. Me and my colleagues who were trainees occasionally were given, you know, real work to do that wasn't entirely just sitting behind a desk. And I had one assignment where the office I was working at the time had been receiving letters from someone who claimed that they had previously been an active agent of the CIA and that they had a cousin who had been killed in the country that they were both from and they were concerned that that was in retaliation that the, that the host country had found out that they worked for the CIA and killed their cousin in retaliation. So I was handed these letters, told to go into the files and figure out what was going on. And I discovered in the files that this person was telling the truth that they had worked for the CIA. That was accurate. And there really wasn't any way to put together anything about the cousin, although that was a person who we knew existed. And I was assigned then to contact this person, meet with them, and get more information and talk it through with them. There was also, for complicated reasons that I don't think I should go into, there was some money owed to this person. And so I was also tasked with delivering that money to them. I got in touch with the person and I set a time and a date to meet them and arranged for their uh, travel to the place we were going to meet. And uh, my identity could not be exposed, so I was told to wear a disguise. So I was sent down to the basement of headquarters to a sort of a large room that looked kind of like a hair salon, and I was put into a disguise. And I remember thinking it was all, I didn't quite buy it because the whole disguise was to slick my hair back, glue a false mustache to my upper lip, and give me a pair of glasses. So to me, it seemed completely unconvincing. I just looked like myself wearing glasses, pretty much. And if I had grown a mustache. And the person who put the disguise on me, I, I expressed my concerns to them and they said, well, you can trust me. I've been doing this a long time. Nobody's going to recognize you. I went upstairs and I had this group of trainees who I'd been very close to for almost, a, I don't know, six months or a year at that point. I can't remember exactly. We spent all our time together. We had lunch together every day at a big table. And I went, I got my lunch, I sat down at the table, and I got a few weird glances, and nobody said hello to me. And I just waited and waited, and finally at the end of lunch, I said, you guys know it's me, right? And they still didn't know it was me. And I said, it's me, Joe. Nobody could believe it. Not one person had recognized me, and they had all thought, who's this guy just sitting down at our table. That's a kind of socially weird thing to do for a stranger to sit down at a big, you know, loud table of friends. Anyway, I got the disguise and I went to meet this guy who had come in to talk to me. And then this person came and we had a long talk and I gave him the money and I heard him out and I 
told him what we knew and you know it was essentially or something you know obviously really tragic about it because someone he loved had been killed and he felt it was completely his responsibility for spying for the United States government and I think that had a, a really big effect on me that it went from the theoretical to the real you know I was talking earlier about the fact that when you're manipulating these people it's in the interests of getting them to spy for the US government and it's dangerous and they can be depending on the country they're in imprisoned or killed as a consequence and I think at that point the idea that I might have that on my conscience went from a sort of theoretical thing to something a little more real and made me kind of start wondering if this was a job I wanted to do You're listening to I Spy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. Before the break, Joe Weisberg described his brief time in the CIA and his views on espionage. Let's get back to his story. In one of my interim assignments, I was tasked with going through every case file. In other words, every agent who had been recruited to spy in this particular area, looking for some piece of bureaucratic information that I have no recollection of what it was. I mean, it was almost like they were saying, what's the age range of all the agents? It was not that, and it was something a little more interesting than that, and required a little more digging, but not much. That being said, I pulled these files and I started reading them cover to cover and I got a real education in, I mean, beyond an education, I learned who every agent was who was being run in this particular area and I learned their stories and how they had been recruited and what intelligence they had provided. And I had a kind of creeping sense of unease because as I started reading more and more of these, the intelligence they were providing seemed of incredibly little value to me. This really seemed close to useless. And, you know, people in and out of the CIA did talk about the fact that there were sort of bureaucratic imperatives to recruit people, that case officers needed to recruit agents in order to progress in their careers. And as a consequence of that, there were probably a lot more agents recruited than were actually necessary to get valuable intelligence for the U.S. government. I was really seeing that close up. But in any case, I didn't find one agent in this stack who seemed to be saying anything of real importance. And yet every one of them was risking their lives or having their life put at risk. And I was kind of shocked and disillusioned by that. I think I went into a place of, wow, that's a problem with the place I'm working. You're going through all this training and it's all for the purpose of going abroad and recruiting spies abroad. So when that time finally comes, people are pretty excited. I was, I think, more ambivalent. Part of me was excited and wanted to do it and wanted to try out the skills I had learned. And part of me was really wrapped up in all these things I was seeing that made me not believe in it so much and not want to do it. And my father became ill pretty shortly before I was going to leave for my first assignment. And I took a leave of absence and moved back to Chicago to help my mom take care of him. 
and I was there for almost a year, at which point I went back to the CIA. My father died very shortly after that. At that point, a lot of things came together. I think my reservations and doubts about it kind of welled up more into my conscious mind. I had also gotten engaged during the year I was in Chicago, and just sort of you put all that together, I did not want to go live abroad, and I did not want to go do this job, so I, uh, I quit for good. I left the CIA. I felt that I wanted to maintain my cover, so I was in a kind of a limbo for quite a few years where I didn't tell anybody what I did. And I was moving on, doing other things, and I started writing novels, and for whatever reason started to feel that I wanted to write a spy novel. And I think that got me thinking more about all those things that I've already mentioned that I experienced and kind of bringing them into my conscious mind and really weighing them and starting to ask questions that I had not asked previously, like, if there are all these spies who are not producing intelligence that I think is valuable, And again, I don't say that's true of all the spies. I didn't see all the spies, but there were reasons to suspect that what I had access to did represent a large majority. So if I was correct that a large majority of spies were not producing valuable intelligence, why were we doing this? And, you know, I previously, when I had allowed myself even traces of thoughts like that, I had focused on the fact that it could and did cost people their lives. But I... I now got more interested in sort of foreign policy implications and really trying to weigh the damage done by the activities of the CIA and the intelligence community. Because the CIA spies all over the place and people know it and they know they're being spied on and they become suspicious and resentful of the US government. That's a giant oversimplification of a very complicated phenomenon. But I think it is fair to say that there is, in addition to the sort of moral choices about putting people's lives at risk, there is a true reputational and policy cost for the U.S. government of being seen as spying so broadly. So I started to wonder about that, and I I started having real doubts, and maybe more than doubts. I started to think this is not worth it. The other key piece to this, which really is about my perception about the Soviet Union is that I read a memoir by a guy named Viktor Cherkashin, who was a pretty important KGB officer during the Cold War. He was involved in running both Aldrich James and Robert Hansen. And it was a really intriguing book for me to read because somehow I had held on to a kind of, uh, I guess, almost juvenile image of the KGB officer. I'd never shaken out of my head the idea of sort of the nefarious, bloodthirsty Soviet automaton who would do anything. But when I read Cherkashin's memoir, not only did it give the lie to that, but when he talked about himself and his colleagues at the KGB, they really reminded me of myself and my colleagues at the CIA. They had a lot in common with us. I don't mean just that, you know, everybody loves their children, But I mean that they were hired to some degree, like at the CIA, for good social skills, for being people who you would want to hang out with because that was considered key to recruiting. And for the most part, they were patriotic and believed in their country and believed in the cause they were serving and believed in their work. You know, there was probably a 
higher level of cynicism at the KGB than at the CIA in the latter Cold War period, but it was not pervasive. So I was really struck by that book, and it was part of a process of rethinking my old views, not just about KGB officers, but about the Soviet Union as a kind of evil empire. I started to understand that that, in the same way, was very black and white thinking. So I was interested in coming up with some sort of formula just at least to help me think about it or quantify it in in some way. I wasn't going to, I didn't know how to do and wasn't going to do a, a scientific study. But I did ultimately start asking myself the question, will this intelligence alter anything the United States does? That was the primary, most important question. And secondary question, will it alter the uh, U.S. administration's understanding of what's happening in some significant way that is not exactly available through open source methods? And if the answer was, people will read this, but it will not change any policy, it will not alter any military activity, it will not have any actual effect, and likewise, it is not significant for reimagining or re-understanding the situation, or if it is significant, you could learn the same things from open source material, then it is not valuable enough intelligence to risk somebody's life for, which is, I think, the same way for me as saying, then it is not valuable intelligence. So that was kind of where I landed about espionage. And ultimately, I created a TV show called The Americans about KGB spies. I did think I would have an opportunity to kind of portray certain aspects of intelligence more accurately than they are normally portrayed in television and movies. I ran this show and with a partner, my partner Joel, and we used to joke all the time that if people really paid attention to all the different missions and spying activities of the Philip and Elizabeth, the heroes, they might notice that really very few of them ever came to any kind of positive fruition, that it all was sort of a game being played. I don't mean a game, it was way too serious to be a game, but in the sense that in the real world, it mostly just caused harm and didn't do much good to the Soviet Union. I think just coming up with stories and writing about espionage, it sort of naturally leaked in that my opinion of the efficacy of espionage was, was kind of low. You know, it was true and it was important, but it was not on the surface. But the real thing that I was, you know, motivated by in coming up with the idea in the first place was to take on the idea of the enemy and to suggest that these people who we perceived of as our bitter, bitter enemies at the time were not so different from us. It's sort of like I was saying about the KGB officers I discovered in Cherkashin's memoir. I thought they were monsters, and they were me, pretty much. The initial impetus was much more that, and all this working on it felt in fundamental ways connected to and sympathetic to these KGB officers. That was a obvious part of the show. There's a tremendous amount of pain and suffering in the Americans that comes about as a result of espionage. If you were a Soviet illegal, 
the suffering inside the family was very, very intense. And to certain degrees, CIA officers and their families have some of the emotional issues that you see Philip and Elizabeth dealing with in a kind of more extreme fashion. It is not an exact one-on-one parallel at all with a CIA officer living abroad undercover, but it was inspired to a significant degree by seeing my colleagues at the CIA who had to lie to their kids about what they did until the kids reached a certain age. Because if you're abroad and you tell your kid who's five that you work for the CIA, he goes and brags about it at school and your cover is blown. So you can't do it. That sort of dynamic where the kids are lied to, you hear many different stories from kids who take that very hard and are to some degree traumatized by the fact that they have been lied to. That kind of emotional dynamic inside a family seemed very unique to espionage and it seemed like something very powerful to kind of hang the family dynamic of a drama on. One of the things I think I learned from the CIA was that you have to be careful not to automatically believe what people are saying. Not because people are lying or misleading on purpose, but because there's a very powerful tendency to want to believe in your own work and to think it is valuable and think it is important. And so if you work in intelligence, you're very likely an intelligence booster. I don't want to sit with someone who's devoted their career to this and say, I, who only devoted a few years to it, think it is of dubious value and does harm. I feel weird and not good, but also it's a valid perspective. And, you know, people at CIA are smart, capable, thoughtful people. I don't think there's anything ultimately wrong with sort of challenging them about their work as you can challenge a lot of people about their work. I have run into some people who made their careers in espionage and are pretty much in agreement with my assessment. I think that is a minority and possibly a small minority. I think most of the people who even lean in this direction get out, but some stay. And I guess all I can say about those who are troubled by it is I try to be very careful not to say that what I'm saying is a fact. I think it is subjective. It is my opinion. I don't ask anybody to necessarily agree with me. And one way or another, the people at the CIA, I loved these people. I loved working with them. They were great colleagues, great people. They've devoted their lives to something they care about and believe in. So that's all good. Joe Weisberg is a television writer and producer and the creator of the great show, The Americans. He describes his brief time in the CIA and his thoughts on espionage in the book, Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy for the Second Cold War. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for podcast is Dan Efron. Our team includes Rob Sachs, Laura Rossbrow Tellum, Rosie Julin, and Claudia Tatey. Our show now has a newsletter, and it's absolutely free. It includes beautiful illustrations that the artist Guy Shield makes for iSpy, photographs from some of the missions described on the podcast, and other bonus content you won't find anywhere else. To sign up, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpyNewsletter. That's foreignpolicy.com slash iSpyNewsletter. 
iSpy is made possible through the support of Foreign Policy Readers. If you're interested in smart news and analysis from around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners can get a 15% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code iSpy at checkout. This is our last episode of the season. We'll be back soon with more spy stories. I'm Margot Martindale.